Welcome to Crazy Enough to Win. I'm your host, John Grubbs. Welcome to the show. Now, we have an unusual topic for you on this episode. Something that I think you will find, well, a little controversial. And remember, we're crazy on this show. We will we'll, we'll go after topics that may be, well, they may be a little bit fearful to others because we are not afraid. We are crazy enough to go big. So here is a non-political view of politics and the economy during COVID-19. And the lesson from this episode is simple. Only demand will tell. People used to say only time will tell, but I want you to remember only demand will tell. We'll come back to that at the end, so you do not want to miss the ending of this show. So we have what I call an echo chamber on the West Coast and the East Coast of the United States. I mean, some people call others political hacks. And my definition of a political hack is anyone that doesn't believe what you believe. And people say, what is an echo chamber? Well, it's an environment in which a person encounters only beliefs or opinions that coincide with their own so that their existing views are reinforced and alternate ideas are not considered. I mean, seriously, if you are a political conservative in Hollywood, you are ostracized socially. It is the same in New York, which happens to be the epicenter of the mainstream press. And whether you are a fan or not, this is not a show that is touting one station or channel over another. But whether you are a fan or not, when Rupert Murdoch created Fox News, he realized that half the country at least did not agree with the thinking in the echo chamber. And here's some statistics that will validate that. In 2016, 10% of New York residents voted for Donald Trump. 10%. And this one is even more amazing. Only 4% of Washington, D.C. residents voted for Trump. So you can see that if you live in those parts of the country and you have a difference of opinion when it comes to politics, you are considered a political hack. And when most of the mainstream media comes from a certain area, it's not difficult to identify the disconnect they may have with other parts of the country. And, and similarly, the economic response to the pandemic, to COVID-19 people, has now become political. And if you want to reopen the economy sooner, you're more likely to be a conservative. And if you want to wait for a vaccine, well, you're more likely to be a liberal. And the mainstream media is following the same ideological lines for COVID-19, well, because they're in New York City. Why? Well, because they're seeing a different reality than, let's say, someone who owns and operates a business in rural Kansas. And an echo chamber, well, they create what we call confirmation bias in the world of psychology. And confirmation bias is 
not the situation where your social media feeds agrees with itself. It is far, far more subtle. Even if you're exposed to information that disagrees with your opinion, you might not take it in. You might misremember it. You might find a reason to ignore it. You'll keep digging until the numbers you see are the ones you wanted to see. Isn't it funny how the mind does that? So in other words, confirmation bias is the arch nemesis of data science. Since it means that a fact is no longer a fact, no matter how much math and science you throw into getting it. And we could look at the same number and perceive it differently. And when we expose ourselves to better information sources, it's, well, it's not enough to overcome the problem that starts, well, in our brains. And, you know, take the New York City subway and nursing home deaths out of COVID-19. How many are left? Well, in a brief search, I found that those two segments of our population account for nearly 50% of all deaths in the U.S. Now, that data may change day by day, but that's where it is right now. So if you're in New York or you have a loved one in a nursing home or even more tragically, you lost a loved one in a nursing home, you're going to see COVID-19 differently from someone else. I mean, here's an example. How does a barbershop owner in Nebraska see his reality as the same as someone in New York. That's right, he cannot. But the other side of the reality is how does someone in New York see the barber in Nebraska? How can you think of opening up this soon? You see the difference? So the common denominator with the coronavirus has seemed to be the mass transit system, especially subways. It's why the, the death results from COVID-19 are so different in New York City versus Los Angeles. And Brett Stevens, he's a, he's a columnist for the New York Times, is stunned at the concentration of COVID-19 deaths in New York City versus the rest of the metropolitan area. And listen to what he said on April 25th. He said that a number of COVID deaths per 100,000 in New York City is 132. And it is 16 times what it is in America's next largest city of Los Angeles, which is eight. So let me repeat that for you in case you missed it. The deaths in New York City from COVID-19 are 132 people per 100,000 residents. In Los Angeles, it's eight people per 100,000 residents. And Stevens went on to say, it isn't hard to guess why. Uh, this is going on, why people are thinking the way they are. And commuters crowd trains. The mass transit is the common denominator, people. It is the, it is the thing that's linking all these deaths. And, you know, office workers, crowded elevators, diners. No other city has the same kind of jammed pedestrian life like New York City. And get this, Times Square alone gets 40 million visitors a year or as many as residents packed into high-rises. And the issue of exposure density is the problem, according to Stevens. And he went on to say that population density is the problem. But overall measures of city population density, well, they can underestimate risk. 
the vast majority of New Yorkers live in population densities far higher than the New York City average. The population density in the four boroughs served by the New York City subway, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx, is about three or 31,600 people per square mile. Wow. But get this. 78% of the population lives at a much higher density than these averages. The median resident of New York live at higher densities at 56,600 people per square mile. And it should go without saying that the evaluation of COVID-19 spread needs to be objective. I mean, it needs to be based on data. And we need to include all potential factors. Even the most politically correct people see, subject, see density as a determinant. And when people have to get around in a highly dense environment, well, they may choose to isolate. And the subways are in such an important part of New York City. We, you know, close contact in subways is fully consistent with the spread of the virus, either by inhaled droplets or residue left on railings, pivot grab handles, those smooth metallic vertical poles that everyone shares. And it makes sense to have a different response to COVID-19 based on geographical data. And it helps people to kind of understand that, well, we shouldn't be too biased and understand an alternate point of view. So let's get to the governors. The governors are using executive orders to guide people in their states. Now, are these actual laws? Hmm. Let's answer that question. The 10th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution included in the Bill of Rights states that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And during a virtual discussion Wednesday hosted by Georgetown Law, a professor named Chertoff called the novel coronavirus outbreak one of the biggest tests our nation has ever seen in the relationship between federal, state, and local authorities. And the professor, well, he pointed to a complete lockdown of an entire community in New Rochelle, New York. And he also pointed to Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordering roadblocks on a border with Louisiana as alarming examples of overreaches of power. And this professor, uh, Georgetown professor, Lawrence Gostin, he specializes in global health, said that states are fully empowered to issue stay-at-home orders and close businesses, but cannot restrict interstate travel. So there's a little bit of contention going on here. You can, you, he said you can't just set up a border with an adjoining state and not allow people of your state out of your state or people into your state. And he said the Constitution has exclusive powers to regulate interstate commerce between travel in states. Now, whether the president wields the same power to close state borders remains unclear, but the professor added, he said, many constitutional lawyers interpret the Public Health Service Act of 1944 to not bestow the same power given to Congress to the executive. So there's still some debate there. And the panel agreed that governors retain exclusive responsibility for the step-by-step -step mitigation procedures within state borders. 
Hmm. Regardless of where you are on that spectrum, one thing is true. The pandemic is straining the limits of our civil liberties. Do we have freedom or not? And civil liberties are often portrayed as a necessary sacrifice in the fight against COVID-19. But experts, including public health people, are saying, you know, it may be a false choice. And can we do some of the things that we're thinking about? And we need to consider the evidence before moving with intervention that erodes people's freedom. Will you be willing to give up your individual rights for the sake of the common good? That's the question that citizens across the world are facing in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. But according to experts, public health and private policy, it may be wrong, the wrong question to ask. Instead, we should be weighing the specific kinds of information that health officials need to do their jobs, whether there are less intrusive alternatives and whether there's evidence that these approaches will work. So we do have a balancing act. We want to have our individual freedoms, but we also have an expectation that the government that we support financially is going to protect us with certain measures. So you can see how this can be complex. And once we answer these questions, we're, we need to forge ahead in a way that preserves our privacy and our civil liberties as much as possible. And we need to also ensure that safeguards are in place. It's vital that the powers granted to governments during a time of crisis do not let me say this again, do not consider continue after COVID-19 is over. And the best way to balance public health and civil liberties is with evidence. And we, uh, we need to research how to strike a balance between these two camps. And he noted, this is, this is uh, Gostin speaking again. He said he noted that there is a way to leverage interventions that are voluntary or less restrictive. If so, those should be considered. So it all begins with science and not an arbitrary or draconian measure like locking people in their homes. We need to maintain the public's trust, Gostin said. So how long, this is my question for you listeners, how long will a free country be locked down? And I personally don't think it's going to be much longer in some areas. I just completed a, a really powerful interview that's on another podcast with Julie Eshelman. She's a behavioral psychologist who is currently locked down in London, England. And during our discussion, it was determined that the people, the consumer, will drive economic demand. The people are going to drive the economic train going forward by a simple law of economics. Get this. This is the nugget from today's show. Supply and demand will guide us out of this pandemic. Demand will create the supply for goods and services. And smart business owners will adjust to the demand or change if the demand doesn't recover. And sadly, the demand for some things may never return. If movie executives are willing to stream new releases to the public, when will people want to go into a crowded movie theater to watch a movie? Could this model become extinct? Hmm. Only demand will tell. And let's turn to schools and training. I am in the education business. That's my job. And, and be warned, our students are a great example of this virtual panacea that's going on about 
work, and school. And I truly believe we need talented teachers in front of students and not the same as a Zoom or, well, some other video format. It's just not the same. My 16-year-old is not getting the same quality education as he was before the pandemic. And, and get this, some universities are scheduled to reopen for in-person classes in August. That's three months away. Will students enroll and attend? Hmm. Only demand will tell. Nothing is different in the corporate training environment. Service offerings must follow demand. Will people have on-site training for their employees soon? Only demand will tell. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you know, I would love for you to share it with others. You know, the future is bright. I think it's going to be bumpy. I think we're going to see a recovery that uh, surprises a lot of people. But just remember, the consumer, the buyer, they will determine the path through this pandemic, through this recovery that is, well, at its early stages. We are on the path to recovery. Let demand follow your offerings and you will be successful. Are you crazy enough to go big? Are you crazy enough to challenge the status quo? Are you crazy enough to win? Until next time.